Thoughts on Religious Experience came out in the year 1841, and this is Chapter 2. The author is Archibald Alexander, the first president of Princeton Theological Seminary. Piety and Children Comparatively few children are renewed in infancy and childhood. Souls awaken in different ways. The legal conviction of sin is not a necessary part of true religion. And Progress of Conviction It is an interesting question whether now there are any persons sanctified from the womb. If the communication of grace ever took place at so early a period of human existence, there is no reason why it should not now sometimes occur. God says to Jeremiah, Before I formed thee in the belly I knew thee, and before thou camest forth out of the womb I sanctified thee. And of John the Baptist, Gabriel said to Zacharias his father, And he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost even from his mother's womb. The prophet Samuel also seems to have feared the Lord from his earliest childhood. In later times, cases have often occurred in which eminently pious persons could not remember the time when they did not love the Savior and experience godly sorrow for their sins. And as we believe that infants may be the subjects of regeneration and cannot be saved without it, why may it not be the fact that some who are regenerated live to mature age? I know indeed that many conceive that infants are naturally free from moral pollution and of course need no regeneration. But this opinion is diametrically opposite to the doctrine of Scripture and inconsistent with the acknowledged fact that as soon as they are capable of moral action, all do go astray and sin against God. If children were not depraved, they would be naturally inclined to love God and delight in His holy law. But the reverse is true. Perhaps one reason why so few are regenerated at this early age is lest some should adopt the opinion that grace came by nature, or that man was not corrupt from his birth. Some have opposed the idea that any are sanctified from their birth, for fear that mere moralists and those religiously educated should indulge the hope that they were born of God, although they have experienced no particular change in any part of their lives as far back as memory reaches. But allowing that some may improperly make disuse of the doctrine, it only proves that a sound doctrine may be abused. All the doctrines of grace have been thus abused and will be as long as the heart is deceitful above all things. There is, however, no ground for those who are still impenitent to comfort themselves with the notion that they were regenerated in early infancy. For piety in a child will be as manifest as in an adult as soon as such a child comes to the exercise of reason, and in some respects more so, because there are so few young children who are pious and because they have more simplicity of character and are much less liable to play the hypocrite than persons of mature age. Mere decency of external behavior with a freedom from gross sins is no evidence of regeneration. For these things may be found in many whose spirit is proud and self-righteous and entirely opposite to the religion of Christ. And we know that outward regularity and sobriety may be produced by the restraints of a religious education and good example, where there are found none of the internal characteristics of genuine piety. Suppose, then, that in a certain case grace has been communicated so early a period that its first exercises cannot be remembered. What will be the evidences which we should expect to find of its existence? Surely we ought not to look for the wisdom, judgment, and stability of adult years. 
even in a pious child. We should expect, if I may so say, a childish piety, a simple, devout, and tender state of heart. As soon as such a child should obtain the first ideas of God as creator, preserver, and benefactor, and of Christ as a Savior, who shed his blood and laid down his life for us on the cross, it would be piously affected with these truths, and would give manifest proof that it possessed a susceptibility of emotions and affections of heart corresponding with the conceptions of truth which it was capable of taking in. Such a child would be liable to sin as all Christians are, but when made sensible of faults, it would manifest tenderness of conscience and genuine sorrow, and would be fearful of sinning afterward. When taught to prayer with both a duty and a privilege, it would take pleasure in drawing near to God, and would be conscientious in the discharge of secret duties. A truly pious child would be an affectionate and obedient child to its parents and teachers, kind to brothers and sisters, and indeed to all other persons, and would take a lively interest in hearing of the conversion of sinners, in the advancement of Christ's kingdom in the world, we ought not to expect from a regenerated child uniform attention to serious subjects, or a freedom from the gaiety and volatility which are characteristic of that tender age, but we should expect to find a natural propensity moderated, and a temper softened and seasoned by the commingling of pious thoughts and affections with those which naturally flow from the infant mind, when such children are called in providence to leave the world, then commonly their piety breaks out into a flame, and these young saints, under the influence of divine grace, are enabled, so to speak, of their love to Christ, and confidence in him, as astonishes while it puts to shame aged Christians. Many examples of this kind we have on record, where the evidence of genuine piety was as strong as it well could be, there is a peculiar sweetness as well as tenderness in these early buddings of grace. In short, the exercises of grace are the same in a child as in an adult, only modified by the peculiarities and the character and knowledge of a child. Indeed, many adults in years who were made the subjects of grace are children in knowledge and understanding, and require the same indulgence in our judgments of them. As children in years, to those who cannot fix any commencement of their pious exercises, but who possess every other evidence of a change of heart, I would say, do not be discouraged on this account, but rather be thankful that you have been so early placed under the tender care of the great shepherd, and have thus been restrained from committing many sins to which your nature, as well as that of others, was inclined. The habitual evidences of piety are the same at whatever period the work commenced. If you possess these, you are safe. An early piety is probably more steady and consistent when matured by age than that of later origin, though the change, of course, cannot be so evident to yourself or others. The education of children should proceed on the principle that they are in an unregenerate state until evidences of piety clearly appear in which case they should be sedulously cherished and nurtured. These are Christ's lambs, little ones who believe in him. None should offend or mislead upon the peril of a terrible punishment. But though the religious education of children should proceed on the ground that they are destitute of grace, it ought ever to be used as a means of grace, 
Every lesson, therefore, should be accompanied with the lifting up of the heart of the instructor to God for a blessing on the means. Sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. Although the grace of God may be communicated to a human soul at any period of its existence in this world, yet the fact manifestly is that very few are renewed before the exercise of reason commences, and not many in early childhood. Most persons with whom we have been acquainted grew up without giving any decisive evidence of a change of heart. Though religiously educated, yet they have evinced a want of love to God and an aversion to spiritual things. Men are very reluctant, it is true, to admit that their hearts are wicked and at enmity with God. They declare that they are conscious of no such feeling, but still the evidence of a dislike to the spiritual worship of God they cannot altogether disguise. And this is nothing else but enmity to God. They might easily be convicted of loving the world more than God, the creature more than the creator, and we know that he who will be the friend of the world is the enemy of God. Let the most moral and amiable of mankind who are in this natural state be asked such questions as these. To take real pleasure in perusing the sacred scriptures, especially those parts which are the most spiritual. To take delight in secret prayer and find your heart drawn out to God in strong desires. You spend much time in contemplating the divine attributes are you in the habit of communing with your own hearts and examine the true temper of your souls? No unregenerate person can truly answer these and such like questions in the affirmative. It is evident, then, that most persons whom we see around us and with whom we daily converse are in the gall of bitterness and bond of iniquity and continuing in that state where Christ is. They can never come. And yet, alas, they are at ease in Zion, and seem to have no fear of that wrath which is coming. Their case is not only dangerous, but discouraging. Yet those who are now in a state of grace, yea, those of our race who are now in heaven, were once in the same condition. You, my reader, may now be a member of Christ's body and heir of his glory, but you can easily look back and remember the time when you were as unconcerned about your salvation is any of the gay who are now fluttering around you, the same power which arrested you is able to stop their mad career, still hope and pray for their conversion. But tell me, how were you brought to turn from your wayward downward course? This is a release to the external means of awakening, would receive a great variety of answers. One would say, while hearing a particular sermon, I was awakened to see my lost estate and I never found rest or peace until I was enabled to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Another would answer, I was brought to consideration by the Solomon-pointed conversation of a pious friend who sought my salvation. While well, a third would answer, I was led to serious consideration by having the hand of God laid heavily upon me in some affliction. In regard to many, the answer would be that your minds were gradually led to serious consideration. They scarcely know how. Now in regard to these external means or circumstances, it does not matter whether the attention was arrested. And the conscience awakened by this or that means, gradually or suddenly, neither do the things at all assist in determining the nature of the effect produced. All whoever became pious must have begun with serious consideration. 
whatever means were employed to produce his state of mind. But all who for a season became serious are not certainly converted. There may be solemn impressions and deep awakenings which never terminate in a saving change, but end in some delusion, or the person returns again to its old condition, and rather to one much worse. For it may be laid down as a maxim that religious impressions opposed leave the soul in a more hardened state than before, just as iron heated, and then cooled becomes harder. In general, those impressions which come on gradually, without any unusual means, are more permanent than those which are produced by circumstances of a striking and alarming nature. But even here there is no general rule. The nature of the permanent effects is the only sure criterion. By their fruits you shall know them. That conviction of sin is a necessary part of experimental religion. All will admit. But there is one question respecting this manner concerning which there may be much doubt, and that is whether a law work prior to regeneration is necessary, or whether all true and salutary conviction is not the effect of regeneration. Discovered it a hundred years ago, this is a manner in dispute between the two parties into which a Presbyterian church was divided. Called the old side and the new side, the tenants and prayers, insisted much on the necessity of conviction of sin by the law prior to regeneration, while Thompson and his associates were of opinion that no such work was necessary, nor should be insisted on. As far as I know, the opinion of the necessity of legal conviction is generally prevailed in all our modern revivals, and it is usually taken for granted that the convictions experienced are prior to regeneration, but it would be very difficult to prove from Scripture, or from the nature of the case, that such a preparatory work was necessary. Suppose an individual to be in some certain moment regenerated. Such a soul would begin to see with new eyes, and his own sins would be among the first viewed in a new light. He would be convinced not only of the fact that they were transgressors of the law, but he would also see that they were intrinsically evil, and deserved the punishment to which they exposed him. It is only such a conviction as this that really prepares the soul to accept of Christ in all of his offices, not only as a savior from wrath, but from sin, and it can scarcely be believed that that clear view of the justice of God in their condemnation, which most persons sensibly experience, is a fruit of a mere legal conviction on an unregenerate heart. For this view of God's justice is not merely of the fact that this is his character, but of the divine excellency of his attributes, which is accompanied with admiration of it, a feeling of acquiescence or submission. This view is sometimes so clear in the equity and propriety of punishing sin are so manifest, in a feeling of acquiescence so strong that it has laid the foundation for the very absurd notion that the true penitent is made willing to be damned for the glory of God. When such a conviction as this is experienced, the soul is commonly near to comfort, although at the moment it is common to entertain the opinion that there is no salvation for it. It is wonderful, and almost unaccountable, how calm the soul is in the prospect of being forever lost. An old lady of the Baptist denomination was the first person I ever heard give an account of Christian experience, and I recollect that she said that she was so deeply convinced that she should be lost 
that she began to think how she should feel and be exercised in hell, and it occurred to her that all in that horrid place were employed in blaspheming the name of God. The thought of doing so was rejected with abhorrence, and she felt as if she must and would love him even there, for his goodness to her, for she saw that she alone was to blame for her destruction, and that he could, in consistence with his character, do nothing else but inflict his punishment on her. Now surely her heart was already changed, although not a ray of comfort had dawned upon her mind. But is there not before this generally a rebellious writing against God, and a disposition to find fault with his dealings? It may be so in many cases, but this feeling is far from being as universal as some suppose. As far as the testimony of pious people can be depended on, there are many whose first convictions are of the evil of sin rather than of its danger, and who feel real compunction of spirit for having committed it, accompanied with a lively sense of their ingratitude. This question, however, is not of any great practical importance, but there are some truly pious persons who are distressed and perplexed, because they never experience that kind of conviction which they hear others speak of, and the necessity of which is insisted on by some preachers, certainly that which the reprobate may experience, which is not different from what all the guilty will feel at the day of judgment, cannot be a necessary part of true religion, and yet it does appear to be a common thing for awakened persons to be at first under a mere legal conviction. Though man in his natural state is spiritually dead, that is entirely destitute of any spark of true holiness, yet he is still a reasonable being, and has a conscience by which he is capable of discerning the difference between good and evil, and of feeling a force of moral obligation. By having his sins brought clearly before his mind, and his conscience awakened from its stupor, he can be made to feel what his true condition is as a transgressor of the holy law of God. This sight and sense of sin under the influence of the common operations of the Spirit of God is what is usually styled conviction of sin, and there can be no doubt that these views and feelings may be very clear and strong in an unrenewed mind. Indeed, they do not differ in kind from what every sinner will experience at the day of judgment, when his own conscience will condemn him, and he will stand guilty before his judge. But there is nothing in this kind of conviction which has any tendency to change the heart, or to make it better. Some indeed have maintained, with some show of reason, that under mere legal conviction a sinner grows worse and worse, and certainly ceases sense to be greater in proportion as the light of truth increases. There is not, therefore, in such convictions, however clear and strong, any approximation to regeneration. It cannot be called a preparatory work to this change in the sense of disposing the person to receive the grace of God. The only end which it can answer is to show the rational creature his true condition, and to convince a sinner of his absolute need of a savior. Under conviction, there is frequently a more sensible rising of the enmity of the heart against God and his law. Feelings of this kind do not belong to the essence of conviction. There is also sometimes an awful apprehension of danger. The imagination is filled with strong images of terror, and hell seems almost uncovered to the view of the convinced sinner. But there may be much of this feeling of terror, where there is very little real conviction of sin, 
And on the other hand, there is often deep and permanent conviction where the passions and imagination are very little excited. When the entrance of gospel light is gradual, the first effect of an awakened conscience is to attempt to rectify what now appears to be wrong in the conduct. It is very common for the conscience at first to be affected with outward acts of transgression, and especially with some prominent offense. An external reformation has now begun, for this can be effected by mere legal conviction. To this is added an attention to the external duties of religion, such as prayer, reading the Bible, hearing the word, and so on. Everything, however, is done with a legal spirit, that is, with a wish and expectation of making amends for past offenses, and if painful penances should be prescribed to the sinner, he will readily submit to them, if he may by this means make some atonement for his sins. But as the light increases, he begins to see that his heart is wicked, and to be convinced that his very prayers are polluted. For want of right motives and affections, he of course tries to regulate his thoughts and to exercise right affections, but here his efforts prove fruitless. It is much easier to reform the life than to bring the corrupt heart into a right state. The case now begins to appear desperate, and the sinner knows not which way to turn for relief, and to cap the climax of his distress. He comes at length to be conscious of nothing but unyielding hardness of heart. He fears that the conviction which he seemed to have is gone, and that he is left totally obdurate. In these circumstances he desires to feel keen compunction and overwhelming terror, for his impression is that he is entirely without conviction. The truth, however, is that his convictions are far greater than if he had experienced that sensible distress which he so much courts. In his case, he would not think his heart so incurably bad, because it could entertain some right feeling, but as it is, he sees it to be destitute of every good emotion, and of all tender relentings, he has got down to the core of iniquity, and finds within his breast a heart unsusceptible of any good thing. Does he hear that others have attained relief by hearing such a preacher, reading such a book, conversing with some experienced Christian? He resorts to the same means, but entirely without effect. The heart seems to become more insensible in proportion to the excellency of the means enjoyed. Though he declares he has no sensibility of any kind, yet his anxiety increases, and perhaps he determines to give himself up solely to prayer and read in the Bible, and if he perish, to perish seeking for mercy. But however strong such resolutions may be, they are found to be in vain. For now, when he attempts to pray, he finds his mouth, as it were, shut. He cannot pray, cannot read, he cannot meditate. What can he do? Nothing. He has come to the end of his legal efforts, and the result has been a simple, deep conviction that he can do nothing, and if God does not mercifully interpose, he must inevitably perish. During all this process, he has some idea of his need of divine help, but until now he was not entirely cut off from all dependence on his own strength and exertions. He still hoped that by some kind of effort or feeling, he could prepare himself for the mercy of God. Now he despairs of this, and not only so, but for a season he despairs it may be of salvation, gives himself up for lost, 
I do not say that this is a necessary feeling by any means, but I do know that it is very natural, and by no means uncommon in real experience. But, conviction having accomplished all that it is capable of effecting, that is, having emptied the creature of self-dependence and self-righteousness, and brought him to the utmost extremity, even to the border of despair, it is time for God to work. The proverb says, Man's extremity is God's opportunity. So it is in this case. And at this time it may reasonably be supposed the work of regeneration is wrought, for a new state of feeling is now experienced. Upon calm reflection, God appears to have been just and good in all of his dispensations. The blame of its perdition the soul fully takes upon itself, acknowledges its ill desert, and acquits God against you. You only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you might be justified when you speak, and be clear when you judge. The sinner resigns himself into the hands of God, and yet is convinced that if he perishes, he will suffer only what his sins deserve. Now he begins to discover the glorious plan according to which God can be just, and the justifier of the ungodly who believe in Jesus Christ. The above has not given us a course of experience which all real Christians can recognize as their own, but it's a train of exercises which is very common, and as I do not consider legal conviction as necessary to precede regeneration, but suppose there are cases in which the first serious impressions may be the effect of regeneration, I cannot of course consider any particular train of exercises under the law as essential. It has been admitted, however, that legal conviction does in fact take place in most instances prior to regeneration, and it is not an unreasonable inquiry. Why is a sinner thus awakened? What good purpose does it answer? The reply has been already partially given, but it may be remarked that God deals with a man as an accountable moral agent, and before he rescues him from the ruin into which he is sunk, he would let him see and feel in some measure how wretched his condition is, how helpless he is in himself, and how ineffectual are his most strenuous efforts to deliver him from his sin and misery. He is therefore permitted to try his own wisdom and strength. And finally God decides to lead him to the full acknowledgement of his own guilt, and to justify the righteous judge who condemns him to everlasting torment. Conviction, then, is no part of a sinner's salvation, but declare a practical knowledge of the fact that he cannot save himself, and is entirely dependent on the saving grace of God. End of chapter 2